Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club. My name is Martin Doyle. I'm books editor. This month's book club is slightly unusual in that we are celebrating the author Maeve Brennan, whose 100th anniversary was on January the 6th. In her lifetime, Maeve was relatively unknown on this side of the Atlantic, although she was a staff writer for The New Yorker and her short stories were published frequently alongside the likes of Frank O'Connor and other Irish writers who are perhaps better known. Since her death, however, there's been a revival of interest in her work, with Sting Fly recently republishing first her Dublin stories, The Springs of Affection, and more recently her New Yorker sketches, The Long-Winded Lady. Maeve Brennan was a daughter of the Revolution. Um, She was born into a middle-class family in Ranelagh, South Dublin. Her father, Robert, was Ireland's first ambassador to the United States, having previously fought in the War of Independence. Her mother, Una, was also involved. Maeve moved to New York, where first she got a job on Harper's Bazaar and then a staff position on The New Yorker, where she established a reputation both as a short story writer and also as a sketch writer. Part of our fascination with Maeve Brennan is the stark contrast between her glamorous early life as a staff writer on The New Yorker and the tragedy of her later life when she ended up almost as a derelict on the streets of New York. Last week I spoke to her biographer Angela Burke and my colleague Patrick Freen about Maeve and her work. We're going to hear that shortly, but first Patrick is going to read an extract from the only long-winded lady sketch that dwelt directly on the Irish roots of this quintessential Manhattanite. The story is called Lessons and Lessons and then More Lessons. One afternoon, it was autumn, there was an armful of flaming papery leaves in the crack beside me. I glanced up to see two nuns walking by, walking west towards 6th Avenue. All nuns look alike. Their black draperies, their resolute tread and their remote air, everything about them was familiar to me. I was surprised to see them, as I always am surprised to see nuns abroad in New York, and I thought, as I had thought at other times, that it is out of the ordinary to see nuns here, and a very ordinary matter to see them in Dublin, where I was born. There was a time during the years I spent in a convent boarding school, and for many years afterwards, when the sight of a nun would fill me with apprehensiveness and dislike, and I was glad then, sitting by that restaurant window, to know those years were gone. That afternoon I had arrived at the restaurant when the lunch hour was over and now, except for two waiters, the place was empty. I like empty restaurants and I had counted on having all the tables and booths to myself. Even the cash register by the door was unguarded. I had taken the afternoon off, but why, what excuse I had offered myself, I can't remember. Perhaps I felt free because it was autumn again. Even so, three o'clock in the afternoon is no hour for anyone to be sitting at a window in a public restaurant with a martini in front of her, or half a martini, as it was by the time the nuns passed, and it seemed miraculous to be able to be so free and independent that I could be in the restaurant I preferred, and drink what I liked, and eat what I liked, and read the books of my choice, and see two nuns pass, and feel nothing except a slight surprise. No apprehensiveness, no wild survey of a panicky conscience, Nothing like that. The two nuns who ran that boarding school were violent women. The head nun was short and fat and her assistant was tall and thin, and they both had genteel accents, the fat one speaking low, the thin one high. The head taught English and her assistant conducted singing classes, but they spent most of their time looking for sin. 
Their task was easy because, of course, we are all filled with sins, but they worked hard at it. They were always on patrol, sometimes together and sometimes separately. They patrolled the silent study hall, and they patrolled the corridors, and they patrolled the classrooms and the washrooms, and they even patrolled the dormitories, often walking between the beds after the lights were out. We knew what they were hunting for, of course, and as soon as one of them appeared in the doorway of a classroom, or anywhere, we all knew that Sin had been stalked home, and that at least one person in the room was going to have to answer for herself. The only thing was, we did not know which one of us it would be. I always felt I was the sinner, and I suppose the others felt the same. The devil works in mysterious ways, and there was never any way of knowing which of our faces he had chosen to reveal himself in. We never knew where we were. Those two nuns tracked him down, even in the refectory, where we had breakfast, dinner, tea and supper. They never seemed to notice what was on our plates. Awful food. It was always tea and bread scraped with butter, except at midday dinner, when it was boiled potatoes. And at supper, the tea was replaced with vile cocoa. For breakfast on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays, the tea and bread and butter were accompanied by one tablespoon of dates that had been boiled into a thin soup, or, as the nun who cooked would have said, a jam. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, breakfast was emboldened by a wafer of cold porridge damped with blue milk. On Saturdays, by a spot of marmalade, and on Sundays, by an ugly morsel of bacon. Tea time and supper time were all bread and butter, except that at tea time we were allowed to bring out the jam and cake we had received in packages from home. Some girls got parcels from home and some didn't. Those who did had the privilege of going around from table to table, there were five long narrow tables, carrying pots of jam and big cakes and bestowing their favours on the girls they liked and walking past the girls they didn't like. There were about 60 of us, aged from 7 to 18, and sometimes the room was quite busy at tea time, especially at the beginning of term, when everybody had something to walk about with. I can't remember Sunday dinner, but on Mondays and Wednesdays, it was boiled potatoes with black pudding that was nearly all grey, and on Tuesdays and Thursdays it was said to be corned beef. On Fridays something fishy, and on Saturdays a stew, an end-of-the-week stew. I was thinking of that Saturday stew and admiring the huge menu the waiter had left on my table when the entrance door of the restaurant opened and the two nuns walked in. They'd been looking for a nice place to eat and they had found it. They walked quickly, without making a sound, straight down the restaurant and I watched them all the way and watched until they had settled themselves in a distant booth. Then I went back to my menu. The menu was still on my left hand, tilted up, as I had been holding it, but my right hand with the empty martini glass in it, had somehow gone under the table and was hiding there beneath the tablecloth. It was the moment of no comment. It was the moment of no comment. You're now going to hear a conversation recorded last week where Patrick and I spoke with Maeve's biographer, Angela Burke. I began by asking Angela about the article which first brought Maeve Brennan to her attention which was written by Fintan O'Toole and first published in the Irish Times on the 1st of January 1998. Yeah, I vividly remember reading that essay by Fintan and agreeing with every word of it, even though I'd never heard of Maeve Brennan. But very shortly after that, um, friends of mine in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near Boston, uh, told me about uh, a book that had been reviewed in the Boston Globe. And they uh, said, it's about your neighbourhood, because the stories were set in Rennell, and that's where I was living. Um, They sent me that book as a present. 
And I, it, I took a while to read it. They were the kind of short stories that are not the best bedtime reading. Uh, you don't know what they're going to do to you. Some of them are very innocuous when mm-hmm. they start, but then they they explore some very dark parts of our emotional and psychological history in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually I got around to reading them. And at the time I was reading them, I was asking everybody I met if they'd heard of Maeve Brennan. And I got some very surprising answers. Um, first of all, I learned that she'd grown up on the very street that I was living on in Randall at Cherryfield Avenue. Mm-hmm. Then I learned that my mother had worked with her first cousin in the civil service and was still in touch with her. I learned from Nolo Foyland that... Uh, New Island Press was about to bring out The Visitor, the newly discovered novella, which uh, was she wrote when she was in her 20s in New York, but which didn't come out until after The Springs of Affection. Um, so then it was Nolo Foylan of this parish who um, asked me, are you going to write about her? And I, I, it had not occurred to me to write about her. I would m- normally write about out of Irish language sources, Um, I would write an interdisciplinary cultural history. But when she said, are you going to write about her? And she fixed me with that gaze she had. And I thought, you know, maybe I would. And then very shortly after that, I was in the States again for the publication of The Burning of Bridget Cleary. And my friends who had sent me the book actually managed to bring together in their house one evening a whole lot of people who had known Maeve. Christopher Cardiff, who had edited the stories, Catherine Powers, who's the sister of Jane Powers, who was the person who had actually reviewed it for the Boston Globe. Um, A couple of other people who, in one way or another, had come across Maeve and really were devoted to the idea of uh, uh, reviving Mm -hmm. her writing and her fans. And what particularly captivated you about her story? Was it the, the personal tragedy or the, you know, the rich family history, the connection to her, obviously... Her father being the first uh, war of independence leader. No, it was leader. more that I that I I identified with it at a whole lot of levels of growing up, you know, with the, this the tiny landscape of inside the house mm-hmm. that you that you did grow up in as a child in Dublin, where you know you weren't allowed out as a small child. The 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 kitchen, the sitting room, the back garden was the world, mm-hmm. and the early stories in the Springs of Affection do concentrate on that world. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, like everybody else, I've had my my griefs and my angers and my disappointments. And uh, I've lived in this country f- all my life with time off for bad behaviour in other countries. <laughs> but um, it just, it, it spoke to me so strongly mm-hmm. about, about life and about the texture of life in Ireland and the realities, the emotional, the personal realities that are behind all these, say, the things that the Irish Times does every year with the review of the year, mm-hmm. all the political stuff, all the economic stuff, all the business news. But in behind that, then there are people living in literature is where we find out about that. Mm-hmm. Families and what they can do to you. And yeah. the Irish woman's home is their castle or their prison or whatever. Yeah, I mean, Irish women, I think, in a lot of cases were in the position of kind of housekeeper in their houses. Mm. Uh, in fact, a lot of women entered that on the on the census. They didn't say housewife, they said housekeeper. But they meant that they, they, they were living in their own homes, mm-hmm. but their homes were owned by their husbands yeah. or their fathers mm-hmm. or perhaps their married brothers or unmarried brothers. Um, and 
you know, the figure of the priest's housekeeper has always been very strong in my head. Mm. There were a lot of them around when I was a child. And the kind of humility and the respectability and the hard work and the, you know, the, se- the sense that you couldn't be seen to be idle, that you couldn't laugh out loud and that the whole thing of class as well. There's a lot in Maeve's stories about the mother polishing the brasses, mm-hmm. the brass stair rods, the, the knocker and the respectability and the terror. And I think this was true in my own family as well, the terror that if you'd come from a small town or from a farm, that you'd be found out, you know. I'm an academic, so I live with the the sort of imposter syndrome, but I think my parents had it as well. I Mm -hmm. think Maeve Brennan's parents had it as well. Mm -hmm. Her mother anyway, not her father, because her father was a strong personality and he was persona grata with de Valera, very much so. What was the parental relationship like? Because in in Christmas Eve, a story that I listened to Roddy Doyle uh, reading the story this morning on the New Yorker podcast, and there it's it's presented that whilst the father was a bit of an absent figure, working late in the evening and had his own room where he worked at home, he had no problem ceding control. He wasn't a domineering figure in the household. He ceded control um, to his wife, and he, with perhaps the kind of suggestion that he didn't know everything that was going on, the cat that slept in the bed unbeknownst to him or the suggestion obviously the separate bedrooms that it was not the intimate relationship that um, you might expect. Well this would be you know you and Patrick are journalists Robert Brennan was a journalist Mm -hmm. and journalists especially then had to stay up very late they worked very late at night to get put the paper to bed so his hours were different from say children's hours Mm -hmm. going to school. the letters that Una Brennan wrote to Maeve and her sister Derry when they were in boarding school in County Kildare are really loving and affectionate. And the children were not terribly well treated in that boarding school and the parents then didn't hesitate. They, um, Una Brennan sent her eldest daughter, who was quite a bit older, she was an older teenager, she sent her on the bus uh, to bring these two girls back and they never went back there. Then they went to Louise Gavin Duffy's school, which was then on Stephen's Green. Um, it was a very, Una was a very loving mother, but she was also a frustrated woman, I think. She'd been very active in the whole cultural movement that led to, the, to 1916. She was one of two women who raised the uh, tricolour over the Athenaeum in Enniscorthy. Yeah, the families that Maeve depicts go from being quite innocent and loving, just children and a mother and a dog, to being absolutely horrific the worst kind of silences and the worst kind of spites being acted out mm-hmm. in, again, this, the same small house. And I think that later kind of bitterness that comes out in her stories owes a lot more to the life she was living as the daughter of a diplomat in America mm-hmm. and perhaps the pressures her parents were putting on her to come back to Washington and help hand the sandwiches mm-hmm. and the canapes where she was trying to make a life for herself as a writer in New York. So in, in New York, she's this glamorous woman. She starts out working um, for Harper's Bazaar, um, mentored there to write about fashion and mm-hmm. to, to groom herself. And that was under an Irish woman, wasn't that it? That was Carmel, Carmel Snow, Snow, yeah. Under her tutelage, whatever, Maeve began writing about fashion and sort of an, an eye for detail and style. Or whatever. Yeah, if you were writing about fashion, you were writing, it was it was real journalism. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just celebrity reports. Mm-hmm. It was real journalism because most women had made their own clothes or had their own clothes made by dressmakers. 
Um, if you, if there was a new look, as there was after the war, of course, or a new way of, of new kind of shoulders and jackets or a new kind of flared skirt or pleated skirt or whatever, mm-hmm. you had to not only describe how it looked, you had to give your readers a sense, not just a sense, but a very precise detail about how it was made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so you had to know the names for the pin tucks and the darts. That comes out in The Long-Winded Lady. She's amazing on describing what people are wearing yeah. and down to a detail that mm. would totally elude. Like, I'm re- reading it as a journalist going, I wouldn't even see those details. And she's she can give you, like, half a page on what someone's wearing. That's right. And it's still entertaining. <laughs> you know. And I think in the very first piece in The Long-Winded Lady, she describes a couple. That it's called They Were Both About 40. Yeah. Yeah. And the, it, she they're on 6th Avenue and she's just observing them. They're out for a mm. slow stroll mm. in the evening. And it's quite, it's compassionate and it's clear as the piece comes on and it's only two or three pages mm. that these people are really not very well matched. Mm. The man is terribly enthusiastic. The woman is quite glum, but she describes her hair in yeah. devastating detail. Yeah, that it looked like hay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> un, like an uncombed wig. Yes. And, and yeah. And it was a pinkish mm, colour. Yeah. And then she talks about the varic- she ta- she's, Then she describes what the woman wore. And mm. it was a dress that fell, I think, in one line to her knees where it had, had a flounce. Yeah. Mm. And then her varicose veins. And so the whole socioeconomic background of the woman yeah. is clear to you in that cheap dress. Yeah. And yet me reading it, I kind of thought, you know, she's not impressed and yet at the same time surely there must be a degree of envy because they were a couple looking through the hot point window at a at a new kitchen I have to disagree with you no I don't think there was any envy at all um, I, I, it's yeah, kind of hard to tell what she thinks sometimes like it, they're amazing we're kind of jumping onto the yeah. long-winded lady though but they're amazing stories and you, you like her short stories go back to Ireland and they talk about um, her youth and her family and details she remembers there's no sense of her past in any of the long-winded lady columns um i think there's belinda mccone mentions in the introduction that there's one that mentions where she flashes back a bit when she sees some nuns Mm -hmm. um but so you've got this character who's wandering around new york seems very transient is staying in constantly moving from hotel to hotel to apartment documenting uh a changing New York from, like, I think the columns around from 54 to 1981, uh, kind of sporadically as she got Mostly older. Mostly the 50s and 60s, Mostly really. the 50s and 60s. They're, they're, they're kind of beautiful. They're also kind of weird. I, I, I haven't done it yet, but I feel like doing some research into how they sat in the New Yorker at the time. Because in the talk of the town, my understanding of it at that time is it was a series of columns that were kind of like uh, social diarist right. things. Yeah. Beautifully written social yeah. diaries. But this is like a social diarist standing in a hopper painting. Mm. Because it's her going in from the rain into a cafe or a bar, having a drink at three o'clock, which is often, you suggests something mm. problematic and nowadays it probably didn't at the time somebody said to me when i lived in the states that yeah. generation floated on alcohol yeah well, it's, it's, it, it struck me a bit of madman kind of a feel to it like you know there's a lot of drinking going on and actually peggy olson the character in madman of the kind of high achieving but yeah. outsider character and who was kind sort of making her way in the world but yeah. you know at the you know, with the blessing of maybe some kind of male figures who kind of let her get ahead, but only so far. Um, and it kind of struck me that there were kind of parallels and the price that you maybe pay 
as a woman to kind of well, uh, get on. She obviously felt like she had to totally cut herself off from her past to, at that point. Now, now, obviously, in her stories, she delves into it. But there's, there's a suggestion of somebody who's not from these stories. And I was curious to ask you, the long-winded lady, Colliams, do you think they're very reflective of her as a person? Or are they, because um, I think they're beautiful Colliams. I was saying to, to Martin that they're the things I read when I need a rejuvenating shot about what journalism can be. And it's journalism, it's also journalism about nothing, right? It's stuff that it's unclickbaitable. You couldn't, I couldn't think of a headline that would make someone click on these stories, which is our loss today. I, I couldn't think of a reason why you'd run these stories now, except that they're beautiful. And that isn't, sadly, isn't enough in the journalism world. At, at the time, that beauty and that, lonely person wandering from cafe to cafe. Was that her life? Was that? Not really. I think she, she had plenty of friends. Yeah. Um, William Sean was the editor and he loved Maeve's writing. Um, I think in some ways what you, what you pointed out there that you couldn't find a, a headline for, for those pieces. I think that's a kind of deliberate protective colouring because yeah. she's the only woman whose voice is identifiable in Talk of the Town. And you're quite right about about the way that there was, was usually a page, two pages maybe, yeah. in Talk of the Town, and it had its own masthead at the top. Um, but it was always anonymous. There was no sense that this was one person. It wasn't a column in the sense that it was, it was not one person's opinion. Yeah. It was supposed to be more that they've all come in from the street and told us what's going on out there. And some person tells about a new play that's on. Somebody else talks about this. Maeve's kind of gravitated towards the, the small stories. Mm. Um, and she was wonderful at, at making sentences, making paragraphs, and just fantastic at just looking at something for about five minutes and then total recall, getting the salient details that will make it so alive on the street, on the, on the page. Because when you, when you read them... Um What's kind of striking about them as a journalist reading them is how she but she, like she doesn't follow a lot of the journalistic instincts. So she sits there. She doesn't wait for something to announce itself as a story. She, she just seems to start writing and describing and finds the the dramatic dynamic in her own writing. So. If you were to describe what happens in some of the stories, it could literally be summed up as I went into a bar, I sat down, a man over there shook his umbrella, another man came in and said he'd missed his train. Yeah. That's the story. <laughs> so the journalistic instinct is kind of almost absent. And the other thing that's really striking is she describes, and she mentions this in her own introduction, she describes... She mentions that the uh, long-winded lady is interested but not curious, which is an interesting way of putting well, it because she yeah. never goes up and talks to people. What she does is she'll sit back and she'll, she'll describe someone and then she'll wonder about them and she'll go, maybe she's this kind of person. Yeah, she'll speculate rather than investigate. Like yeah. The classic <laughs> example of that is when a woman drops dead across the road and yeah. she sees a crowd gather and she speculates <laughs> and tells a waiter what she thinks has happened. Oh, it's just but somebody has fainted. <laughs> but then, you know, only later does she discover that the woman has actually died. Yeah. Um, and then it's very poignant because she sort of says, I hope, what is it? There's something I, I hope that no one, you know, is left to mourn for her or something, something like or that, something. Yeah. So then it becomes kind of psychological. It becomes a bit about her or certainly you get insights into her. Like Mira O'Donoghue 
wrote a short piece as part of the Irish Women Writers series a couple of years ago, and she described uh, the Talk of the Town columns as the inconsequential and magnified to high psychological seriousness and comedy, which kind of mm. gets the sense that, you know, she writes about nothing, as you say, but actually, you know, she, it is quite revelatory um, I mean, of, of herself. She finds, uh, she finds loads of content in what other people wouldn't think to write about mm. like it's to focus on to focus yeah. on and and obviously that was I, I don't know did these columns develop gradually or was she given this as a beat they were I don't think there was any such thing as a beat yeah. at the New Yorker she was she was there to write and when she wrote something that they thought was publishable mm. they would publish it but meanwhile they kept paying uh, what seemed like a salary but in fact it was an advance on work Okay. Yet to come a bit in. Like a retainer, yeah. yeah. Um, except that she had an office. Now they 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 had first refusal contracts with people like Brian Freel and Mary Lavin, mm-hmm. but with Maeve she was she was there. She was in the in the offices. She went to work every day. Joseph Mitchell, another great New Yorker mm. writer, um, was working for like twenty years after he's in an office in the New Yorker. Twenty years after he submitted his last piece, they just it was yeah. like this place where people just kept going. That's right. um, which was reflected in her life. Yeah, right? but what you said about the uh, uh, about the way she describes the street without entering into it, and she doesn't actually approach anybody and ask a question. She doesn't do the who, what, when, where, yeah. why ever. Um, but I think in doing what she did. And I, I do think she had p- protective colouring, you know, that she didn't want to make too big a fuss about what she was doing. But what, it was very revolutionary yeah. because she was actually depicting the reality of life for an awful lot of New Yorkers and particularly women, that it was possible to live in New York on your own as a woman. You could live in a small shabby hotel and you could go out for your breakfast. You could go, you could just go down the stairs and turn right or left. You could get your coffee, you could get your shoes mended, you could get your dry cleaning done, you could get anything you needed. The hotel changed the sheets. You didn't have to have a kitchen, may have never had a kitchen. Um, You didn't have to have all that domestic responsibility, which was the only way that most women could live yeah. mm. after World War Two. Mm. You had to get married. And people, women in America were getting married at 16, 17, 18. You were an old maid at 21 mm. because that was the, the shape of social life. And New York was different. And part of what she's mourning when she's talking about the buildings in Midtown being demolished one after the other and these hotels that she has lived in and restaurants she has eaten in are all being wrecked by the wrecking ball to make way for the high-rise buildings that we know now. The, part of what she's mourning is the actual human scale of the city as she had known it. The loss of her habitat. It's yeah. it, Because New York was like a refuge for people. So there's like, I think E.B. White, another New Yorker writer, has a, there's a collection you can get of his New York essays. Wonderful, wonderful yeah, it's pieces. wonderful, but I think he has a line about how everyone in New York will tell you that the golden age of New York was like 20 years before uh, and that that continues every like 20 years. It's funny, um, that's what Irish storytellers used to say to the collectors. They used to say you should have been here 20 years before, you know, and it, but it is, it is I think that it, that happens when something it, it, when when a life, when a, a, a culture is made so much in the imagination yeah. as it was for New Yorkers, because most of them were living some kind of dream yeah. of their own. You know, it's interesting as well, Pat, you, you mentioned um, that sh- there's no mention of her Irish background except for the two nuns in The yeah. Long-Winded Lady. But if you look at The Visitor, the novella that she wrote in her early years in New York, an amazing little book with a hell of a, a punch. Dark. That's, that was written in New York, mm. but it doesn't mention America. 
yeah. in any way. It's entirely set in Dublin and on the train from Wexford or John Leary, wherever mm-hmm. the, the, the train came from. It's, uh, she had that ability, and I think that's part of her professionalism, like her ability to describe something in great detail, having seen it. You know, from a passing bus. She, she left Ireland when she was 17, mm. so, like, you know, not even an adult. And yet so many of the stories are set in Dublin and they are, you know, very a very adult perspective and understanding of, of marriage and relationships. So she obviously took a lot in as a child and then had that to draw on with an adult's perhaps understanding, you know, once she'd been in her own relationships or whatever and was able to kind of look back and analyse and build on that. I'm, I'm reminded of what um, John McGahern said about his own formation. He said a writer's private world is fully developed by the time he's 19 or 20. Um, and I think the same is true for Maeve. Um, I think you're right that, yes, it was her later adult understanding of, you know, things that maybe to a child would seem to be fixable, that then, you know, you realise maybe as an adult that marriages you have observed were not very happy. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason that she sets the stories back in Ireland is that Ireland is really the only time she was in a family. She was married for a few years to a colleague at the New Yorker, St. Clara McElway, who was, if anything, even crazier and less practical than she was. I think they were all a bit crazy and less practical in that era. They were. In the New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really a haven. And, yeah. and they, they sold so much advertising. They, yeah. they had such a huge in- income. They sold so much advertising and they sold so many copies that they could afford to indulge their writers. Was he the love of her life or there's this other guy, Walter Kerr, that she had a love affair with? Or Yeah, the, Walter Kerr is very mysterious. I don't think McElway was the love of her life by any means. McElway was called, some of the colleagues at the New Yorker called him Marry the, Gu- Marry the Girl Mac. <laughs> <laughs> she was his third wife. Um, I think it was his third wife. Fourth, possibly. Maybe, the maybe the fourth. Yeah, um, she may have thought she was his third and turned out to be the fourth. <laughs> um, but he was very unstable. He he was quite well. bipolar, I think, mm-hmm. um, and alcoholic. Um, I, th- I was reading. I read. I became slightly obsessed after reading this. I read a number of me- uh, memoirs about that era in the New Yorker, and the l- amount of drinking, like mm. they were just sozzled the whole time um, and as a result a lot of them didn't end up well you know including McClare Sinclair McElway yeah. yeah he, he um, I can't remember quite what happened yeah. he died some some years later yeah. but um, they didn't have a lot the single people didn't have responsibilities the married men maybe had a room in town yeah. in one of these hotels where they could conduct affairs and live like bachelors but they didn't have to remember to get milk Mm-hmm. They didn't have to get children up for school in the morning. They had wives in upstate New York or in Connecticut doing that for them. And they went, I think that's partly why as well Maeve has such a a thing about Christmas, you know, mm-hmm. that it was a very fixed thing in Dublin when she was a child. It was always memorable. Then at Christmas in New York, all these men would go back to their families and then there would be these waifs and strays kicking and around, behind, yeah. kicking around mm-hmm. the city. Um so, you know, when she was in when she was married to McElway, they lived in a place called um, 
Oh, she calls it Herbert's Retreat, but it has another Sneedon's Landing mm-hmm. up on the Hudson, a sort of commuter community where there were Irish maids and then very well-off people entertaining each other she at the weekend. She wrote a number of stories set there as well. She did. They're yeah. all published in a book called The Rose Garden, which yeah. unfortunately doesn't seem to be available in bookshops here, published mm-hmm. in America. It's available through second-hand book sites. And I'm hoping that somebody's going to come along because Stinging Fly have done a beautiful job with the uh, Mm -hmm. Springs of Affection and um, the Long-Winded Ladies. So I hope to see those stories um, being made available here. Yeah, those are those are devastating stories in in a different way. They're mostly very satirical, but I think most of the New Yorker readers wouldn't have really got the fact that most of the point of view is actually from the Irish maids and would have had no clue about the background mm-hmm. of the Irish maids and how subversive the stories are She's really. She's an Irish poet in one of them as well. I, I, I read them a few years ago and there's the, it, they're very satirical compared to her Irish stories. Extremely. So there's an Irish poet who everyone thinks is like he's like a, a lyrical alcoholic That's who it. turns up and wows everyone at a party and I'm not sure a New Yorker reader would have got the eye with which she was Oh viewing. well I think she, she, she that man is called Vincent Lace yeah. and he's obviously a figure of the, the touring Irish poet or academic yeah. um, and of course Frank O'Connor was a frequent visitor to the New Yorker and he wasn't he was a prose writer of course and very close to her editor William Maxwell um, and he behaved very badly in places but I don't know that he was an alcoholic mm. still Irish writers who were alcoholics were not hard to find uh, and most of the, you know, American society, despite the fact that there were a lot of martinis in that class of mm. people, there were also an awful lot of teetotalers mm. at every t- stage. Mm. In it, it was, you see, it was after prohibition, I think, that all that alcohol yeah. happened, and so sophisticated people kept their gin and vodka in the freezer, and they started drinking, you know, at three in the mm-hmm. afternoon or mm-hmm. earlier. Is it the sense that the short stories that she wrote about Ireland in The New Yorker were perhaps less gilded out of her that maybe Frank O'Connor or some of the other writers um, presented a, a vision of Ireland that was more palatable or pretty than what she presented? Well, I think, you know, the, the big story that is really her best story, Alice Munro called one of her favourites of all time, is, is this title story, The Springs of Affection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, a, again, a devastating story. And it's the story that broke her contact with her family because it was extremely hurtful to her aunt, who was living in Wexford at the time and who, from all I hear, doesn't deserve, the, the, didn't deserve the awful portrait that Maeve painted. But my sense from reading the correspondence and from knowing a bit about Maeve's relationship with her editor, William Maxwell, was that Maxwell egged her on. Maxwell, as a writer himself, you know, he's again a very revered fiction writer and a, a wonderful prose stylist, but he milked his own early life in all of his fiction. You know, his mother died in the 1918 flu epidemic. Uh, his father was a small town doctor. Uh, he married... Uh, and went on a honeymoon in Europe that became the, the novel The Chateau. Mm-hmm. Um, Maxwell, you know, he had a lot of writers from the South, like Flannery O'Connor or Eudora Welty. Um, he had a lot of writers from Ireland. And I think for the New Yorker reader, those were places, you know, the this poster you used to see of New York where the, you saw all the skyscrapers, the view down Fifth Avenue, and then there was 
California, you know, and, and, there was, yeah. and then there was just something in between. Yeah. We know that we know the the consequences of that kind of thinking now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so they were the exotic other, or they were the exotic other, I think. And there was no sense that there were real people who might read these things and might be cut to the quick by them. What line did she cross by revealing secrets or by inventing stuff around a skeleton of recognisable facts? A little bit of both. You know, she has a sentence where Min was obliged to put her sister into the asylum. But there was a woman of that generation who did end up in the uh, what was then the asylum in Enniscorthy. And it seems possible that she might have had a brain tumour. You know, she actually, I was told that she had asked her sister to put her somewhere, Mm. that she was frightened by her own behaviour. But Mm. there was mental illness or something of that kind in the family. And of course, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, that was still very much taboo. So that there was an element of revealing secrets, but there was more the, the absolutely unrelenting depiction of this character Min as being motivated by spite mm. and a kind of cunning and by nothing else mm. and that from I spoke to several people who knew Maeve's aunt mm-hmm. Nan mm-hmm. and Maeve you know Nan was very fond of Maeve Maeve was very fond of Nan but uh, I think in fact Maeve got her first sense of fashion but also her first taste of urban life mm-hmm. by staying in Wexford and having this experience of going out your own front door and being in a busy street, mm-hmm. which wasn't the experience in Dublin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's quite kind to people. In the long-winded lady, not that she's kind to people, because she, sorry, I was going to rephrase what I was going to say. Like, she casts a cold eye on people, but the one thing she doesn't do that say, it sounds like William Maxwell liked um, was she doesn't make people that she sees on the street grotesque. Mm. So she tends to see a wide spectrum of people, probably a much wider spectrum of people than normally got into the talk of the town section of the New Yorker. So she's seeing poor people, she's seeing rich people, she's seeing shabby middle class people who are wearing a cheaper coat than they should be. Um, and she's describing all this and she always resists the temptation. She, she doesn't, she will describe them coldly and describe everything about them, but she resists the the. The she thing. she never turns them into a cartoon, yeah. mm-hmm. like um, which I think is interesting when you read it because sometimes it's tempting as a writer observing things mm-hmm. to kind of amp up things. You know, she never does that. Yeah, the, she she has something, and I, I I was looking for it there recently. I haven't been able to put my finger on it, but she's commenting on something that another writer has written, and it might be John Updike, but mm-hmm. something about. Uh, the sparrow hasn't been hurt, it's only been frightened. And she says, I wanted to say, but Mr, let's say, Updike, uh, being frightened hurts. <laughs> so she's she is always conscious of that, but she's also probably got her own unresolved trauma, her own inability to move beyond a certain safety yeah. circle, because she's not going to be the person who goes across the road to see if she can help somebody who's collapsed in the street. She is going to hold herself back. She's quite self-protective because I think there is a sense that she has this independence. This life is sustainable as long as there are shabby little hotels and family-run restaurants. But if those are stripped away, a woman on her own is extremely vulnerable. And I think she has a very strong sense of that. Mm -hmm. She does seem like she's in a protective bubble. And she does, like... My my thing reading the the columns is just that I feel it's a form of journalism that 
is gone and it's a form of journalism that's beautiful and everyone could benefit from reading and is incre- there's an acceleration in how it's disappearing because increasingly uh, both newspapers and newspaper readers want everything to have a clear point. Mm. And you see sometimes in our Facebook comment section, you know, under a more lyrical bit of writing Mm -hmm. and they never get as lyrical as Maeve Brennan, you'll see somebody write, what's this about? Why is this here? Why is this news? Right. Um, And the whole point of her stories, and it's a reminder to me of the power of uh, an observer with insight um, who's a good writer, like, it's just that she finds meaning in the smallest things or a lack of meaning. Like she, she always manages to create something beautiful with the smallest amount of raw material, which is hugely inspiring to read as a writer. Like, um, like I really like her short stories, but I kind of think I love the long winded lady columns. Mm. Um, that's my speech. Uh, no, I, 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 the last few weeks have been full of Maeve celebrations yeah. and I have been back looking at my own book, looking at her stories, obviously. And as a biographer, I found a lot of material in her stories. But as you remarked, Pat, the the long-winded lady doesn't have much. I mean, it it allows us to date certain movements in her life. And and hotels. Yeah, a bit of that. But I probably paid it less attention. And just because it's been republished, because Mm. we celebrated its publication on the 6th of January, which was made of centenary, of course. I've g- gone back to it, and I've, I was in New York a few yeah. months ago, and I, well, I was very busy while I was there, but I would love nothing more than to spend about a week in New York doing nothing mm-hmm. but reading The Long-Winded Lady mm-hmm. and walking around those streets. People talk about mindfulness. Like mm-hmm. There's something about her stories that are really mindful. They're about observing your direct surroundings, mm-hmm. not worrying too much about past or future or... Uh, anything outside the particular room yeah. and just mm. describing things and mm. there's something in it that is um, good for the soul. There is and she and it's not that she has no politics because she describes a, a, mm. an anti-Vietnam march um, and she also describes going to the little Czech church mm. at the time of the Prague Spring. Mm-hmm. You know, she she's she allows, sometimes she allows things in from the outside world and again to me those little vignettes yeah. of a single person and her response to those events. I've, I read those as tremendously valuable to yeah. us today, mm-hmm. 50 years later or whatever it is, not quite 50. How engaged was she with with Ireland, either the politics or, or the culture? Like, it's true that apart from that one story with the nuns, which we uh, republished uh, recently, none others deal with Ireland. And yet it does, there are sort of hints of her hinterland, like she buys a Benedict Kiley book, a poor scholar, I think, in a shop. She ends one other piece quoting Oliver Goldsmith at length. So she definitely um, is engaged uh, to that degree. She wrote about Vietnam and she wrote about the Czech uprising, but did she ever talk about the troubles re-emerging or stuff like that? She makes reference in her early story. She says the Catholic Church loomed as large as the fight for Irish freedom in our life or in our family. Mm -hmm. Um, But in her mature New York years, she really wanted nothing to do Mm -hmm. with politics. Now, when she went there first, um, her father was still in Washington Mm -hmm. uh, as the um, Irish minister. I mean, he was the equivalent of an ambassador. Mm -hmm. Um, And she had a lot to do with the Abbey Theatre. 
So the Abbey would um, have its tours in North America and Maeve would be very much part of the welcoming party. Um, she's also acknowledged as having helped somebody who was producing a great big anthology of Irish writing. So at the literary level, she was very much Irish. Mm-hmm. She didn't lose her accent as far as I understand. At least people be- people believe that she still spoke with her Irish accent. What brought her home to Ireland in the early 70s when she stayed for a while with Roddy Doyle's family? She was starting to fall apart at that point. Um, And she was in a kind of, I don't know, would you call it a kind of elated state some of the time where Mm -hmm. she would, she, and maybe this is because she may have been on um, medication for depression, which may actually have had a side effect of making her Mm-hmm. elated yeah. uh, because certainly she she had had mental health troubles mm-hmm. by the time she came to Ireland um, and of course she was older she was well into her 50s mm-hmm. at that stage and it wasn't it wasn't a very welcoming world for women in their 50s and particularly perhaps a divorcee like she you know like Roddy Doyle I think um, in the New Yorker podcast described her as being the first divorcee that had been in the house, That's right. like almost like a, a creature from science fiction. Yeah, I mean, it was almost it was almost unbelievable. That, you know, divorce was something that was in magazines that came from England. It wasn't even mentioned in Irish newspapers mm-hmm. probably at that time. Um, she came back to Ireland. She had a notion of of getting an apartment in Ireland and of living in Ireland again. And she 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 took uh, Roddy Doyle's sister Pamela around with her, looking at places. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think. She was so unstable at that stage. She had stay, she did stay with her sister for some time, but whatever she did, she did something unacceptable and mm-hmm. her sister asked her to leave. And then she was with Roddy Doyle's family for a while, uh, Rory and Dita, that he wrote about in his lovely memoir mm-hmm. um, out in Kilbarrack. And uh, she lived in a, a sort of a masonette in the back garden that they had fixed up for... Um, their other brother for, for Roddy's uncle mm-hmm. who had been in America but had ill health and had mm-hmm. to come back to Ireland so he had died and this little sort of granny flat space was available and so she lived there like, Is it unknowable why her life fell apart in the way that it did was it to do with um, relationships not working out with perhaps alcoholism or like Finton speculated in his piece about the fact that there was this deracination that she was kind of caught between two worlds Ireland and America or was it just some underlying um, instability in in her character oh well I don't I don't believe in instabilities of character (laughs) so I I don't think I I, I don't think I'd go down that that particular road Um, I suppose what I kind of suggested when I was writing the biography and I think I still stand by it, is that it was just a kind of perfect storm of circumstances. You know, when she was in her 50s, uh, and as I said, it wasn't a welcoming time to be a woman in your 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, women uh, after menopause were called castrates by some respected writers. There was a lot of um, um, pushing of... Um, hormone replacement therapy which was in its infancy at the time there was a suggestion that mm-hmm. you know you you married a lovely wife and then she turned into this horrible old looking 
person. You know, the most awful sexist stuff that you mm. get in some of the writing was, was being presented as scientific fact mm -hmm. at the time that Maeve was, say, turning 50. Um, there was also the fact that I don't think, again, that she was in any sense a Miss Lonely Hearts grieving about the fact that her, her relationships didn't work out. She was dedicated to her writing. Mm -hmm. A relationship that didn't allow her to write was not going to be interesting to her. Mm -hmm. um, she was very, very kind to her nieces and nephews, um, but I don't see any frustrated maternal urge in anything that she wrote. Um, I think she had chosen the life, but the life appeared to be there, but then it turned into an illusion. You know, over and over again in her writing, she talks about people who find themselves stranded without a ticket. Mm -hmm. um, the, or, you know, some kind of development of that idea that, that other people know something that nobody told her. And I think that she just, she arrived in New York, it seemed wonderful. It was full of talented, energetic, single people, male and female and trans, everything. Mm -hmm. um, she could feel herself to have a home in a, in a way that didn't demand the kind of subservience that having a home in Dublin in her stories demanded, where mm -hmm. you didn't go out except to go to Mass and to get your groceries, for instance. She could be at home. She was at home for many years. But then age, the changing culture, mm -hmm. um, the coming home of lots of people from Vietnam with severe mental post-traumatic stress and drug-induced paranoias, and then a new policy of mental health in the United States that was called care in the community, but that actually meant dumping people out onto the streets. Mm -hmm. That meant that when she did need help, she only got it for a certain time, but then she could sign herself out of a hospital mm -hmm. and be on the street. I yeah. sometimes think that the character that Brenda Fricker played in one of the Home Alone mm -hmm. uh, films yeah. might have been based on Maeve Brennan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, she became this kind yeah. of, you know, very articulate bag lady yeah. person mm -hmm. nursing a sick mm -hmm. pigeon. Um, at some level, being on the street, you know, again, being on the street was freedom. Being on the street was rejecting well, the Vietnam the, War. Mm -hmm. And that's what the books are about is like that that becomes tragic over mm -hmm. time. And yeah. she, she talks well in The Long Winded Lady, that sense that she's constantly moving and that maybe sometime there won't be a place to move to mm -hmm. is there. So l like you said, when she's a lot of the stories talk about buildings coming down and she feels often feels sad about yeah, that. She's running and out of buildings ahead of the wrecking and ball. And in one story, yeah, she, one story, she talks literally about that and, and watching a hotel come down and she's sitting in another hotel and she's looking at the wall, the paint in the wall. Mm -hmm. and She really likes the color and doesn't think she'd be bold enough herself to use the color. Yeah. But she considers how when they knock this hotel down, everyone will be able to see the paint in this mm. wall and yeah. they'll wonder about it. Mm. Yeah. So she's always got this sense that maybe time is going to mm. run out for yeah, her. Yeah, and some of the long-winded lady pieces, and I think they might be the early ones, she doesn't talk about living in hotels. She talks about coming in on the train yeah. and going up to 168th Street mm -hmm. to get her train home. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's the persona that she initially created while she was living actually with her husband of a few years mm. uh, in this place called Sneedon's Landing. And that was a persona. That was this woman with not a care in the world. The most serious thing she's got to do is maybe find another pair of gloves because she's mm -hmm. got a stain on one of the ones she's wearing. And that's a kind of an inconsequential, light-hearted 
yeah. sort of, um, you know, as th- this is where I, I talk about protective colouring, where she presents herself as somebody who's no threat to the establishment. She's not taking on the men. She's not pronouncing. She's not looking for a headline. Yeah. There's one striking discovery that you made recently, and that was that uh, there was a character based on Maeve Brennan in a friend of hers, um, a fellow writer's work, Edith Konecki's A Place at the Table. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, this was a few, maybe it might be as much as seven or eight years ago, there was an event in New York in Greenwich Village to celebrate Maeve. It was after my biography came out. And I wasn't able to go. I was teaching. Um, But Maeve's niece went, who lives in England, who was very fond of her, and who was born in New York, in fact. Um, She went, and at that evening, uh, a lady... In, who was, you know, in her late 80s at that stage, introduced herself as having been a friend of Maeve. And she, uh, Yvonne, the niece, wrote to me, asked me if I had come across her and I hadn't come across her or, or any reference to her in everything I'd read. And just last October, I had an opportunity to meet that woman myself. She's She was 94 when I met her in October. She may be 95 by now. What I discovered when I met her was that Maeve Brennan around about the time that she spent some time in Ireland, but in the 1970s, um, they, the two women met at uh, a writer's centre at the McDowell Colony in New England. And um, they, they became very close friends, and both of them were friends with Tilly Olson, mm-hmm. the wonderful author of Silences and Tell Me a Riddle. Um, they, the three of them became really good friends, and Maeve was very fragile at that time. And she would come and stay with Edith Conachie in in Manhattan and she would just sit in silence with her fists clenched or she would wail in lamentation. She was quite high maintenance. But then at other times she was wonderfully solicitous, very kind, you know, bringing little gifts, always concerned for her friends. So it was lovely to know that Maeve Brennan did have these women friends and women friends who saw the world very much the way she did, who had sort of ploughed their own furrow mm-hmm. despite everything that was going on around them and managed to do the writing they wanted to do. You mentioned that there's a very powerful um, piece that may have wrote for a book by Tilly Olson, which Tilly kept um, pinned near her writing desk and also, I think, Edith herself and no, even you. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, would you care to read it for yeah, us? And I don't please? think this was this was part of a book. It, it, this was this was just a letter to Tilly Olson. And Tilly Olson's major work is silences. It's about the things that just the discouragement, the way people can get so tired or so busy. You know, Nolo Feilan talks about uh, why women very often read very light romantic fiction. She says because light, their lives are so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, Tilly Olson obviously suffered these periods of silence herself. And this is a piece that Maeve wrote for her. It's only a, f- a few sentences. Um, but it, again, it reminds me of the business of being sent into life without a ticket because she talks about a word. She was looking for one word that she could say as though there's a magic word that would make everything all right. Mm-hmm. But of course, there isn't. So this is what she wrote. And Tilly Olson had it over her desk. And then Edith Conachy copied it and put it over her desk, and then she gave it to me, and now I have it over my desk. So Maeve says to Tilly Olson, 
I have been trying to think of the word to say to you that would never fail to lift you up when you are too tired or too sad not to be downcast. But I can think only of a reminder. You are all it has. You are all your work has. It has nobody else and never had anybody else. If you deny it hands and a voice, it will continue as it is, alive but speechless and without hands. You know it has eyes and can see you, and you know how hopefully it watches you. But I am speaking of a soul that is timid but that longs to be known. When you are so sad that you cannot work, there is always a danger fear will enter in and begin withering around. A good way to remain on guard is to go to the window and watch the birds for an hour or two or three. It is very comforting to see their beaks opening and shutting. Thank you very much, Angela. And thanks very much as well, Patrick. Um, This has been an Irish Times book podcast celebrating uh, the centenary of Maeve Brennan. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll be back again next month. Thank you.